0: Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with Him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around, and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. about him. Where are people addicted to crises? We want those mountaintop experiences. Crises, critical moments, beatific visions, they're critical to us because they're the things we take with us, the things we remember. But what all of these moments of crisis have in common is this it is rare that the people present on the mountaintop or in the valley really understand what's happening. Almost never. Now that moment, because of its intensity or emotion or context, may be what we celebrate. But what is more important than the top of the mountain or the bottom of the valley is where we go afterwards. It's to walk down the mountain. That defines us and the disciples experienced that with Jesus on this mountain and their mountaintop experience helps us to explore three realities of moments in crisis in our life and our walk of discipleship and the first is this those moments are clarifying if you look back at the scriptures chapter 9 there verses 1 through 8 you find that some pretty amazing thing happened for the disciples on top of that mountain. Now, first, Jesus took three of them up, and that's significant in and of itself. They should have known something big was going to happen, because whenever Jesus took three people with him, a miracle was going to happen. Because according to Jewish law, and Jesus was Jewish, you had to have two or three witnesses to validate any claim. And so when he separates out three, he's pretty much saying, something big, we need witnesses, so come with me. So they should have known, and they probably did know, that something big was going to happen. And when they get to the top of the mountain, they've been asking the question, Who is Jesus? They've just said He was the Christ, but He kind of disagreed with them, and they disagreed with Him. He called Peter Satan. It was a pretty rough time for him. And now they're coming up onto the mountain, and the question is going to be revealed again, Who is Jesus? And there are going to be three witnesses to testify to who Jesus is on top of that mountain. Moses, Elijah, and God. I couldn't think of a better three. Now, I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they knew. Maybe they introduced themselves. But it's not surprising it are these two, because in the history of Israel, there are a few people who didn't taste death. Enoch was the first one. Elijah is another. Elijah is tortured and and chased down by people. He's always saying a word nobody wants to hear, persecuted, depressed, all those sorts of things. But at the end of his life, God sends a fiery chariot down to him, and he's taken up into heaven alive. That's unprecedented, it's bizarre. So the fact that Elijah would still be alive to come down, not surprising. Moses, too, went up to the top of a mountain and then disappeared. Nobody knew what happened to him. Deuteronomy tells us he died, but nobody ever found his body. So there's been a lot of Jewish thought about that. So again, these are the guys. But more important than that, Moses is the one who gave the law to Israel. And Elijah is considered the prophet of ancient Israel. And so here we have the law and the prophets testifying to who Jesus is. And then if that weren't enough, the cloud comes down and a voice from heaven says, This is my son, whom my love. Listen to him. That's a clarifying moment. Never mind the fact that Jesus suddenly becomes transformed in front of them and his garments become so white that Mark doesn't even have the language to describe it. It's, it's whiter than you could imagine. If you think you know white, if you, did, if you weren't there, you've never seen white is Mark's language. But what does it mean? Our moments are like that too. For that brief moment, whenever we're at the bottom or at the top, we call them those extreme experiences, the mountaintop or rock bottom. For that moment, things seem clearer to us too. For that moment, we catch a vision of what could be. And it becomes crystal clear to us It even becomes real to us. But what's important for us to realize is as clarifying as that moment is, it's never about that moment. It's about what comes next. And the moment for the disciples was clarifying. And the significance of the moment wasn't lost on them. They knew something significant was happening. But the meaning of that moment, they did not have the tools to understand So first, the moment was clarifying, but second, the moment is also terribly confusing. And Peter helps us to see this, right? In the middle of all this stuff happening, Peter has to talk. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Mark tells us, he didn't know what to say. We were terrified. I was reading a commentary this week by Ben Witherington III, and uh, he said this about Peter. He said, some people have something to say. Some people have to say something. Some people have something to say. Some people have to say something. That's Peter, right? But the intensity of that moment was confusing. It was terrifying for Peter. Now, we don't know why he wanted to set up the booths. I, I don't really know why that occurred to him to do. It's possible that he thought, I was right. He is the Christ. Here he is, revealed on top of the mountain. Let's start building the new Jerusalem. Maybe it was that. Maybe Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were having such an interesting conversation that, that, you know, Peter didn't want to leave. Maybe he said, let's set up some tents right here and have a camp meeting. Whatever it was, Mark tells us that Peter was out of his mind. I'm not even sure Peter knew why he wanted to stay. But that moment was so overwhelming. And that's true for us, too. It's so charging, it's so full of energy, it's so full of clarity that we're just going out of our minds. So I've got to do something with this energy. And Peter says, let's build something. But Peter doesn't know what's happening in that moment, even though he's there. The moment's clarifying, but the moment is also confusing. And here's the saddest part of this story for me. The moment was not transforming it made no difference for them not yet do you notice as they walk down the mountain Jesus says to them don't tell anybody what you've seen until the Son of Man rises from the dead now Jesus is just continuing the conversation they had before they went up on top of the mountain I mean Peter said you're the Christ Jesus said yes don't tell anybody but I'm going to have to die. And Peter says, whoa, wait a minute. You're out of your mind. Obviously, you've misunderstood. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And he says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to accept that this is the road you're going to have to walk. And then they get up on the mountain. Peter forgets all about that. Jesus walking down the mountain after that wonderful experience says the same thing he said on the way up the mountain. Don't tell anybody until I rise from the dead. And they're confused. What do you mean rise from the dead? I don't get it. What you think He probably meant that metaphorically. Right? That's the conversation that they're having. Right? I wonder what he meant by rise from the dead. But They were exactly the same. All their assumptions, all their opinions, all who they were, exactly the same after seeing Jesus transfigured as they were before. It made no difference. And Jesus then talks about Elijah, who the ancient Jewish prophets thought would come before the Messiah came, before the king came, to free Israel from their bondage to the Romans. And so they say, why does the text say, if you're the king, we just saw you up there. They don't have a problem believing he's the king. They have a problem believing how he's going to get there. So they say, if you're the king, then wasn't Elijah supposed to come first? And Jesus says, yeah, Elijah did come. We've seen him already in the the gospel according to Mark. His name was John, John the Baptist. And he was murdered. So he says they did whatever they wanted to Elijah. Same fate for me. And you can just imagine why the disciples are confused. That doesn't sound like winning. We sometimes deceive ourselves, just like the disciples did, into believing that that moment has more power than it really does. We like to believe that we can change in an instant. That one thing can happen, and that there will be no work between what I see on that mountaintop or in that valley and what I saw clearly from there. But you see, here is the power of this moment. What they saw on that mountaintop, which they would later recognize, thankfully. But what they saw on that mountaintop was a vision of who Jesus was going to be. Resurrected, healed, king, white robes. They saw it. They got up on that mountain and they could see into the future. They saw a vision of who he was but what they did not realize was that the road from this mountaintop to that mountaintop went through the cross. The moment was clarifying. It was confusing. And it was not transforming. Our speaker yesterday said this. He said, if you find yourself in Egypt, enslaved, there is no way to get to the promised land. Without going through the wilderness, there is no way of getting from slavery in Egypt to the freedom of God in the Promised Land without going through the wilderness. There was no way for Jesus to get to his kingly place without laying down his life on the cross. Now, I don't want to diminish these moments. We need those moments. When the Israelite people were led out of the wilderness into the promised land, and God miraculously stopped the waters of the Jordan River so they could walk through, he told them to go back and take stones out of the riverbed and set up a a memorial so they would remember what God had done. When God delivered them from slavery in Egypt with all those plagues, God told them to commemorate that every year in the Passover, which they do to this day, and we do as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So, we need those remembrances. We have to go back to those critical moments. But what we have to remember is that those moments do not define us. Who we are is how we walk down the mountain and how we get to the next one. Chasing those high moments is foolish. Jesus indicates, and the story of the gospel tells us, that even that highest of heights, who could have gotten closer to Jesus and to God than that moment, and it left them completely unaffected, because they would not accept what it would take to fulfill the vision they saw that day. Our real life, it's never behind us. It's always in front of us. And real life, exists in that boring, placid, in-between place where it looks like nothing is happening. The high moment gives me a chance to see what could be, but it doesn't get me off the hook for having to get there. Our real life is always before us. The life behind us is an imagination. It helps us, but it cannot haunt us. For those of us who've lived wicked and terrible lives, that's easy. Because we don't want to look back. For those of us who have good lives, all we do is look back. But the truth is, it's always in front of us. The disciples would never again in their earthly lives have a moment like that on that mountain. Never again would they have that moment. Even when Jesus rose from the dead, even when the Holy Spirit poured down, from that point on, they were persecuted mercilessly and every one of them died for their faith. That mountain turned out to be the greatest moment of their lives. I would say, until they hear those words from Jesus, Arise, my love, at the end of time. The road from Caesarea Philippi, where they were at this moment, to the glory that the disciples saw manifested on that mountain, was a road that led for Jesus through the dirty streets of Jerusalem, into the courts before Pilate, to a cross where he was crucified, to a grave in which he was buried, and then to the resurrection that they saw prefigured. Transformation occurs when we allow the vision that we have at the bottom or the top of this road of life that we walk on to give us hope. We see, I think God does this, we see what we could be, who we could be, what our life might be, And we see it. And when we see it, God is telling us, there it is. And we have to keep that vision as we have to plow through the ordinary. Real life, where God wants to transform us, is in the mundane moments between the significant ones. There is no way to move from slavery to freedom without going through the wilderness. But God wants us to know when we're on, when we find ourselves at the highest of heights or the deepest of depths. He wants us to know that what we see there is a vision of the future that we can only discover if we sell out to Jesus. He is the only one that can take us from where we are to what we've seen when we poked our head up through the leaves and saw the sun. Sometimes we make a big deal of that first mountaintop experience when someone says, I'm going to follow Jesus. But what we have to learn to celebrate is the journey from there to what God has for us because that's really where the Christian life exists. Becoming a Christian is not a matter of simply a courtroom where we were being tried for a crime and the judge says we're not guilty because of Jesus, and then we're done. We're acquitted to live a new life. And Paul seems to say in the book of Romans that we can enslave ourselves again to the stuff Christ has freed us from. And so Paul says that. You've been set free? Why would you then embrace a yoke of slavery again? but the only way to be free is to follow Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. The difference is Jesus redefines the valleys and turns them into possibilities. He redefines death and makes it the door to new life. He upends everything. And if we want freedom, we will not find it if we will not follow